Hey everybody, welcome to The Edge Podcast by MGR, your host, David Gill here. I hope everybody's having a fantastic week. As always, I certainly am. Uh, This week, today, we are talking about Shopify's major new announcements. They had their Shopify Unite conference this week, and uh, they made a huge announcement, and then they had a couple other smaller ones, and I wanted to talk about that and what that means for the e-commerce world in general and what it means for uh, Shopify itself as a company and where they could be headed. Um, And then I also wanted to talk about the Paris Air Show was this week, and it didn't get a ton of headlines, but there were a couple things that caught my eye that I thought were very, very interesting. So that's what we're going to talk about today, and then... Uh, For all my NBA heads out there, uh, you guys know if you listen to this podcast that I'm a major basketball fan, and uh, the NBA draft was on Thursday, and I wanted to talk about that for a minute, but that will be at the end, so if you're not a basketball fan, you can tune out when we get to that point, but for all my my true basketball fans out there, I got to give my thoughts on the draft a little bit. Um, Anyways, also real quick. Before we get into it, uh, if you are a uh, e-commerce and Shopify seller, merchant, whatever you want to call it, uh, I did. I was on the MGR Unplugged podcast uh, this week, also where we discussed. Uh, it was more advertising strategies um, with Facebook and Instagram, and kind of getting really in depth a lot of the strategies uh, that I use and that we use for uh, our clients and basically managing their campaigns. Uh, it was pretty in-depth, and it's going to go a lot more in-depth than I normally do on this show. So if you're interested in that, uh, go check it out, MGR Unplugged. You can just search it on whatever podcast platform. Anyways, let's get into today's episode. You ain't got no money, I ain't got no time. All these faces looking funny when I'm driving by. So Shopify just continues to impress, honestly. Um, They really are outdoing their competition, especially uh, Amazon, which you could say is competition. They're two different types of businesses, but I'll get into that in a second. But they're really outdoing everybody in terms of just the value that they bring to their merchants, to the users of their platform. Ultimately, they're in a competition with, if you forget about just Amazon, but you look at other uh, platforms out there, whether it be WooCommerce or BigCommerce or uh, Webflow or just any of the plethora of uh, Magento, any of the plethora of uh, services out there that you can use to build your e-commerce site. Shopify just... They continue to separate themselves as the dominant platform and the one that just brings the most value and has the most, uh, just I guess you could say features, but not even just features, just overall merchant support and uh, helps you. It, it really is the platform that helps you scale. And this week they increased that even more so. Um, if you did not hear, they made a major, major announcement. They announced their new uh, SFN, is what they're calling it. It's the Shopify Fulfillment Network. So if you're familiar with Amazon FBA, Fulfilled by Amazon is basically the same thing, but it's through Shopify. 
The name kind of is self-explanatory, but it is basically a fulfillment network that merchants will now be able to use uh, to send their product to, to send to different warehouses, and then Shopify will handle all of the uh, fulfillment for you and shipping to the customer. And basically anyone who uses the fulfillment network will basically, it's, it's two-day shipping anywhere in the U.S. So obviously that's that's a big deal and i'm going to touch on it in a few different ways so number one how does this affect uh e-commerce brands well one of the biggest things one of the biggest barriers to actually acquiring customers or getting customers to make the purchase on your e-commerce site versus say on amazon or buying on walmart or target or any of the other major players is the fulfillment, is the shipping, right? It's very difficult for a lot of e-commerce companies to afford to offer very good shipment options. Obviously, Amazon Prime, which has uh, 70 million uh, Prime members in the US, 70 million households, so, I mean, almost basically everybody in the US is a Prime member at this point. And I I mean, at some point, it's gonna be really that everyone in the US is a Prime member. and so because of that, uh, everybody is used to two-day free shipping with Amazon, or even now they're rolling out same-day free shipping. I recently, uh, I live in Phoenix, and uh, we are one of the early cities, I think it was Phoenix and Las Vegas, and maybe somewhere else for the, for the one-day and sometimes same-day free shipping. And I've had a couple packages come the next day. I had one even come the same day. It was unbelievable. I didn't even expect it. I didn't realize it was coming that day. I ordered in the morning. It was there in the afternoon. So when you get used to that as a consumer, and I'm very guilty of this too. I mean, listen, we work with uh, direct-to-consumer companies all the time and companies who are really trying to maximize their e-commerce sites. But even I myself, when I'm doing my own shopping, uh, I will find something on an e-commerce site and I'll think it's interesting. Maybe they got me through some uh, Instagram ad or something. And then from there, I will just check to see if it's on Amazon. And if it's on Amazon, I buy it on Amazon because I get the two-day free shipping. Um, And that's a major, major uh, impact on e-commerce stores. And so what, what this fulfillment is, this new fulfillment network from Shopify is doing is really leveling the playing field. They're they're gonna offer. They're gonna make it so that every every Shopify merchant can offer two day shipping, which is massive. Um, and then basically those merchants will pay a fulfillment fee, just like if you have if you're familiar with Amazon FBA, like I said, I know a lot of you are. Uh, that you pay a fulfillment there fee there as well. Shopify did not announce a ton of details as far as uh, overall pricing and everything, but I would assume it's going to be similar to Amazon's pricing model. It's obviously going to be um, by package size and weight, and uh, I would assume the pricing is going to be kind of in a similar range. Amazon FBA has actually gotten a little more expensive over the years, and uh, in some cases, some people opt not to use FBA. Obviously, you lose out on a lot when you don't do FBA because uh, it's difficult to do two-day free shipping, and now if you want to be prime on Amazon, you're going to have to soon do one-day shipping, which is going to be just difficult for a lot of companies who obviously don't have the massive fulfillment network that Amazon has. So that's the benefit of using FBA. And now that is going to be the benefit of using Shopify fulfillment network. Overall, this is just massive for e-commerce sellers. Like I said, it, it just evens the playing field. Because you hear, I mean, if you follow uh, the e-commerce news at all over the past month or so, 
there's just headlines every day of Walmart is doing this, Target is doing that. Every major retailer is trying to find some new way to offer next day shipping, two day shipping, all types of things like this because the consumer really cares about that. And so this just levels the playing field. It gives access to everyone. Um, and I just think I'd be really interested to see the sales boost that early uh, early merchants in this program are going to see because they can now offer much better shipping options than they might have been able to previously. And then the other side of this is that it really affects Shopify's business itself. Uh, Shopify last year did, I believe, $1.1 in revenue. And if I were to guess, my my, if I put my my... Uh, what do you call it, my analyst hat on for a minute and kind of run the numbers. This business, this fulfillment network business, as far as revenue goes, I think within three to five years could be a larger revenue source and maybe even a much larger revenue source for Shopify than their actual platform is itself. And let's dig into the numbers for a second, right? So Shopify's basic plan is $30 a month. Then they have a $60 a month plan. Uh, they have a $300 a month plan. And then obviously they have Shopify Plus, which is for uh, larger brands that are looking to really scale. And that can be thousands of dollars a month. But for the majority of Shopify uh, users, it's basically 30 to 60 to 300 somewhere in there. And if you just look at the fulfillment, say they charge... Again, it very much depends on the product and uh, shipping weight and all of that. But say it's $5 a unit, $4 a unit for your typical product. Say it's $5, you're selling a maybe a larger product. And you're paying the $60 a month uh, fee to Shopify. So you're only paying them 60 bucks a month, plus they get the 2% um, through their uh, commissions. But basically, the most the most money they're getting is, is 60 bucks plus a little bit extra. Well, now they're going to have $5 on every unit you sell to fulfill it. So if you just sell 12 units, that's already 12 times 5. That's already $60. They've already doubled the revenue that they're receiving from you each month. Now, obviously, that's not profit, but as far as revenue, they've already doubled it. And so you can imagine that if they're getting $5 a unit and you're selling hundreds of units a month, thousands of units a month, and then you multiply that by the hundreds of thousands of Shopify sellers, that's a lot of money. And that is much more than $1.1 billion in revenue that Shopify did last year through their platform itself. I think that this could be absolutely massive for Shopify. And this really cements Shopify as just the best in class for seller support. I think a huge difference when people go from using Shopify, if they either, you know, we deal with a lot of clients who either start with Shopify, set up their e-commerce store, they get going there, and then they try to expand to Amazon, or we work with people who start on Amazon, and they actually try to build momentum through Amazon, and then they decide we need to have our own direct-to-consumer presence, and then they go to Shopify. The experience and the reaction is almost always the same from both. The people who go from Amazon to Shopify are wowed by the amazing support and service that Shopify provides and just how much even through their their just when you're using the Shopify platform itself how much you can tell they've really thought about the user experience 
And then the opposite reaction of when people have their Shopify store doing very well and they now want to expand Amazon and they don't have experience with Amazon and they start dealing with Amazon and they say, wow, yeah, they have a lot of customers that could be a major revenue source for me. But man, Amazon's a pain in the ass. Man, their support really sucks. And that's just a clear differentiator for Shopify. I think that now obviously both companies have different incentives. Amazon gets away with it because and I'm not saying Amazon's all bad. They have a lot of uh, great customer support people that work there. I've, you know, we interact with a lot of great people there. But at the end of the day, Amazon has 2 million sellers, I believe, uh, somewhere in that ballpark, and they have to deal with all of them. And, you know, when you have 2 million people, there's going to be some bad actors. And often there's quite a few bad actors on Amazon that are taking advantage of the system, trying to game it. And uh, Amazon has to deal with all of that. And so they get away with it in a way because obviously, listen, about 50% of all e-commerce transactions in the U.S. go through Amazon. So because of that, because they have so much leverage on the customer, on the demand side, they can treat the suppliers, the sellers, uh, kind of poorly and get away with it or not to the to the high level of customer service that a platform like Shopify provides. And obviously Shopify has to provide a tremendous amount of support and service, a tremendously good quality uh, support because they only sell the platform. They don't, you know, you don't go to Shopify.com to buy stuff. You go to, a lot of times, most customers probably have no idea that they're even shopping on a Shopify site. It's just the back end. So uh, it's a different incentive model. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who has better seller support, Shopify by a million miles. And it really just shows now, I think what this could do, and, and I kind of debated this in my head. And when, like I said, listen to the MGR Unplugged podcast that I did, um, because we discussed this a little bit too. And I was posed a question, do you think this will make people want to sell on Amazon less? Do you think more people will just stick with Shopify because now they can provide that fulfillment? They don't need uh, Amazon to provide that fulfillment. They don't need Amazon FBA. And at first I said no, because I said at the end of the day, Amazon's biggest draw is that they have a massive customer base and they have, you know, 100 million plus prime members. And those people spend a lot of money. Um, and it's just, you know, it's access to a massive revenue stream potentially for lots of businesses. And so I said no. And I still think no, mostly. But I think there are definitely direct-to-consumer companies that are going to say, you know what? We don't want to go with Amazon, especially now that we can get our fulfillment through Shopify. And that was really the biggest barrier that we were facing. Uh, maybe we won't expand to Amazon. Or maybe... Uh, what I've seen more and more, and what I think will continue to be a trend, is people will put their products on Amazon, but not necessarily price them in a way that makes people want to buy on Amazon, or maybe equalizes the advantages that you get from buying on Amazon. Because, um, you know, Amazon earlier, I think it was in March, maybe a little earlier this year, they removed the uh, clause or the rule in their uh, seller agreement that said that sellers could not undercut Amazon elsewhere, that they had to have the lowest price on Amazon. Um, they removed that. So now I, you've seen a lot of sellers, we've seen some of our clients as well say, okay, well, we're going to raise our Amazon prices. So if I sell something for 
uh, you know, $20 on my site, I'm going to sell it for $24, $25 on Amazon because I have to pay them a 15% fee and I have to pay them FBA fees. So it kind of equalizes that a bit. Um, and so now I think you'll see, especially with this fulfillment network, if you can offer two-day shipping on your site and a lower price, I think that's definitely a lot of incentive for customers to then buy from your site rather than to buy on Amazon. These are all things we'll have to see. In the end, I don't think Amazon will be massively impacted by this, but I think that I hope that uh, this is a bit of a wake-up call for Amazon to continue to improve their seller side support, their customer support. The consumer side is fantastic. It's phenomenal. I've never had a problem with them. Super easy returns, super great support. They give you a refund on anything. They don't really care the reason. They just want to make sure you stay a happy customer and stay a happy paying prime member. But on the seller side, it's just not as good. And uh, I hope that they improve it. And they've been improving it. But I hope that they continue to improve it and invest more in that side because it does matter. Just because you can kind of get away with taking advantage of sellers does not mean that you should do so. Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts on this major Shopify announcement. I just think it's going to change a lot. And as far as Shopify competing against other platforms, like I said, I just think that WooCommerce and BigCommerce and other platforms man, they're going to have a lot of trouble attracting customers now that Shopify has this great, great offering. Okay, I wanted to talk briefly about the Paris Air Show this week. This is not something that I follow tremendously, uh, the air, airspace, aerospace uh, industry, but I do somewhat because I'm a bit of a, a nerd when it comes to that stuff. And um, there were two things that I saw that interest me. The first is a company that I've been following for three or four years now, I think. I first heard about them, I think, 2016. Maybe it was 2015. I don't remember exactly. Uh, but they're called Boom, B-O-O-M, which some people say, have joked, is not a great name for a uh, airplane company. But I actually like the name. So anyways, uh, Boom Supersonic or just Boom is the name of the company. And uh, by that title, Boom Supersonic, you can probably guess what they do. They are, well, they are trying to make a supersonic jet for passenger planes. Um, we have not seen this since the Concorde 30 years ago, and they are trying to bring it back. I am very excited about this, and this is why I've been following the company for years. They're a startup. They're based out of Colorado, um, and I'm very excited because they they finally announced this week. They, they brought a one-third scale model of the plane to the Paris Air Show, the XB-1. They, they nicknamed it the Baby Boom, and uh, basically it was a, a miniature model of, not a miniature, but one-third scale, still pretty big, <laughs> a model of the full-size plane that they plan on rolling out next year in 2020 uh, for the masses, or at least it won't be ready for commercial flights yet. They have to go through uh, testing and get government approval and all of those things. Um, but basically, their side of things, as far as developing the plane, will be done. And I'm very excited to see what it looks like. I mean, we've seen what it looks like. Uh, go to boomsupersonic.com if you want to see it. I'll put it in the show notes too. Uh, but it's it's a very slick looking plane. It looks similar to the Concorde, but it's it's the fastest commercial plane ever. And uh, it'll be available next year. And so I'm very excited that they're finally ready to roll it out. And 
again, as an aerospace nerd, I just I think it's it's fascinating. I love aerospace companies. It's one of the most difficult industries to get into, especially as a startup. Obviously, this company has raised tons of money. Now, if you want to fly on this plane, uh, one of the first airlines will probably be Japan Airlines, and they're going to be flying people across the Pacific. Japan Airlines, uh, they, they're they one of the major investors in the company, and they, I believe, have an option to buy 20 of the planes, is what I read uh, when I was reading through uh, some articles about this. I, I, hey, it's it, basically, to give you an idea of how fast these planes are, it'll get you from New York to London in about three hours, and it'll get you from L.A. to Sydney, which is one of the longest flights out there. It is grueling, and it'll get you there in a little under seven hours, about maybe six and a half hours, I believe, is uh, what they said is the, is the time from L.A. to Sydney. That's amazing and obviously japan airlines has this incentive because there's a lot of people who fly la to tokyo that's one of the major routes to get into asia and that will be oh i don't remember exactly but it's about similar about five hours i believe for that one maybe a little more than five hours so that is pretty awesome now obviously the big question here is the price how much are these planes how much is a ticket on one of these planes going to cost i don't know Probably a lot in the beginning, just like the Concorde was a lot, and it's going to be a luxury plane in the beginning. It does not; it's not a jumbo jet. It does not fit hundreds of people. Um, but their ultimate goal—this is a very long-term goal—is to create supersonic jets for the masses, which is, I, th- I think, something that uh, many people have been waiting for for a long, long time. I think a lot of people's hopes died out when the Concorde stopped flying, but ultimately. I think it's possible, and I think this company could do it. Uh, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how the initial flights go, but it's just something that I'm excited about as a aerospace follower. But the other thing that I saw that uh, has been in development for a long time, but I think is gaining some traction, is electric planes. And we're still very far away from passenger planes being electric, jumbo jet type planes. But I think we could continue to see smaller planes uh, be electric relatively soon. I think within the next maybe five to ten years, we could see electric planes uh, become more and more common for smaller planes. And so basically at the Paris Air Show, there was a new plane that uh, is called the H-55, I believe. And uh, it was a two-person passenger plane that was fully electric. Um, and they said that they are in development of a four-person passenger plane as well. The biggest challenge with electric planes uh, is just obviously the battery uh, technology. That's that's the thing that holds it back because jet fuel especially um, – is very energy dense to get into the the technicals the physics of it a little bit just so everyone understands the dilemma here basically jet food jet fuel is about 50 times as dense as the most the the highest end batteries out there right now which means basically if you wanted to have a battery that could hold as much energy as your typical uh jet engine tank you would need a fuselage that is 50 times larger, basically, or it would be a battery that is 50 times larger than the fuselage. Obviously, that is not going to work 
uh, you're not going to be able to get the plane off the ground. And so that is why we do not have large electric planes. And so the biggest challenge right now is just increasing the energy density of batteries. That's the biggest challenge for everybody from uh, electric cars to electric planes to even just small electric devices, right? Even your phone. Um, I'm really fascinated by battery technology. It's something that I've wanted to study more. I've studied a bit, but uh, I want to really study it a lot because I just think that battery technology is one of the most important things that uh, one of the most important, I guess you could say, things that should there be a breakthrough, should there be a 10x or 50x, right, uh, improvement in battery technology, someone comes, or some company, whatever, comes with a new, innovative way, I don't know exactly, obviously, if I knew uh, how to make a battery that was 50 times better, I would be doing it and making a ton of money, Um but I think a lot of people talk about the energy generation side of things. Obviously, everyone's constantly talking about, because of climate change, uh, renewable energy sources and how to generate energy sustainably. But I really don't see a lot of people talking about the energy storage aspect, which is just as important. Because if you have much denser batteries, then say, even if you you know, your phone, phone, phone batteries have been getting much, much better. Car batteries have gotten much, much better to the point where now electric cars, a Tesla has about the same range as a full tank of gas of your typical car. It can go 300 plus miles, um, which is about, you know, your typical tank, depending on obviously if you're driving a truck or something, it's gonna be less, but for your typical car. And if this technology continues to improve, then we could see, you know, a car go on one charge, a thousand miles. That's feasible. That's certainly possible within the next, I think, decade or so. But really, what's so fascinating to me about battery technology is, is what is a battery? It's really just a series of chemical reactions packaged into a nice little box. And obviously, the box has to be very good as well. The packaging matters because, uh, you know, lithium is flammable, uh, highly flammable, which is why earlier uh, versions of lithium-ion batteries would tend to explode and catch on fire. And, you know, you saw with the uh, Samsung phones a few years ago that they had not very good packaging on their lithium batteries, and they would spontaneously explode or catch on fire. So the packaging matters. But basically, it's a bunch of chemical reactions going on inside of a box. That's what a battery is. And we just need to figure out how to make some combination of chemical reactions fit very nicely into this box, but generate much more power than they are now. Um, or I shouldn't say generate, but basically store much more power than they can now. And uh, that just fascinates me. And I just think that we're continuing to see the evolution of battery technology. And we're seeing, you know, lithium ion is the premier battery technology now i've seen some aluminum ion which is new newer i should say it's it's i mean it's probably a decade old now but it hypothetically could charge much 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 faster than anything we have now and store more power um but it has not really been uh developed to the point yet where it's ready for mass production but anyways I'm kind of rambling a bit about battery technology here, but I think uh, I think more attention should be put on batteries, uh, considering how much attention is put on energy generation 
itself, an alternative energy generation, I should say. Um, but yeah, because I want electric planes and electric cars that can drive across the country in one charge. I think that's possible. I think it's you have to stretch your imagination. Um, but anyways, that's that's it. It's time. It's it's NBA draft time. So if you're not an NBA person, you can you can turn it off now, I guess. But for all my NBA people, I got to give my thoughts on the draft. Um, for those of you who, I mean, I said I'd live in Phoenix earlier, so you can probably guess who I'm a fan of. I'm a fan of the Phoenix Suns, which I don't recommend to anyone. Um, it's it's a life of, of pain and agony constantly. And, you know, if you had told me before that the Phoenix Suns would make headlines in the NBA draft, I would have said, oh, cool. What do we do? I'm excited. L- let me know. Um, yeah, not the headlines I wanted. Not the headlines of... Uh, Bill Simmons, one of my favorite podcasters, uh, saying that the Suns uh, are drunk and that someone needs to take the car keys away from them. Um, just every radio show and sports show saying, what are the Suns doing? If you don't know what the Suns did, they uh, tr- so we had the sixth pick. And I'll talk about other teams in a minute, but I have to start with the Suns, my team. They started with the sixth pick which is already disappointing because we had the second worst record in the league. So we kind of uh, got screwed a little bit on the on the draft lottery. But okay, fine. We still have the sixth pick. That's still valuable. We can still get someone decent there. Um, I was hoping for Darius Garland or maybe Jarrett Culver. I was, pro- I was hoping for Darius Garland. He was my ideal pick. Um, but I was okay with whoever we got because honestly... I'm not a great draft evaluator, and I, that's not my full-time job, but I think Garland was probably the best option. He went fifth anyway, so we wouldn't have gotten him, but Jarrett Culver was still available at sixth, so we gave up the opportunity to get him, but we traded for Dario Saric and the 11th pick to the Minnesota Timberwolves, which, hey, I think was a good trade when I heard it. I said, okay, cool, Dario Saric, I like him. He's a power forward who can shoot threes. That's exactly what we needed. We do not have a power forward, and we need more guys who can shoot threes next to Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. So I was happy with that trade, and I said, okay, at 11, we can still probably get a decent player, plus we get a power forward who is proven in the league already, right? The biggest problem with the NBA draft is a lot of times you're just getting guys who are unproven, and yes, they have a lot of potential, but it doesn't always pan out. Well, they picked a man by the name of Cameron Johnson. Um, listen, I've I've gone and I didn't know who this was. Okay, he was projected to go in most people's uh, mock drafts in the late twenties, early thirties, and we picked him eleventh. I've watched some clips of him. I've I've read some draft profiles of him. He seems like a decent player. He's one of the best shooters in the draft, which is great. You want, always want to get shooters. But if he's projected to go late 20s, early 30s, why are you using the 11th pick on him? I used this metaphor the other day when I was explaining, when I was venting to my dad, but it's like if someone says, here's $100,000, go buy whatever car you want, and you go buy a Toyota Camry, except you didn't pay, you know, whatever a Toyota Camry cost, 20 grand or whatever, you didn't pay 20 grand for the Toyota Camry, you just gave the dealership the hundred grand and said, eh, keep it. Who does that? If you want a Camry, you say, I don't need a fancy car. I'll just take a Camry. Great. No problem. But don't spend a hundred grand on a Toyota Camry. 
I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. I hope Cam Johnson's very good. He seems to be a great kid. Seems to be a great shooter, which is always what you want to see. He has some injury history. Hopefully, everything will be okay with that. I don't have a problem with the guy. I have a problem with the fact that if they wanted him, they probably could have traded that 11th pick and gone back to 25th and still got him and then gathered other assets along the way, not just taking him 11th. So that was that was one thing. And then we also traded uh, TJ Warren, who was probably our third, maybe fourth best player for nothing. Um we traded him and our 32nd pick for cash to the Indiana Pacers. So basically to open up cap space, which listen, I'm fine. I've been wanting to trade TJ for a while. I thought he was a good draft ass, uh, I'm sorry, trade asset. I would have liked to get something back for him other than just clearing cap space. He makes, I think, $13 million a year, $12 million a year, something like that. And we wanted to open up cap space so that we have it for free agency. Totally understand. But... I would have liked to get at least a draft pick or something back. I don't know. I mean, just to get nothing for him, just to clear the space. I don't know. I feel like we could have gotten more for it. But anyways, my one hope, my one, one hope, there's rumors flying. Devin Booker is very good friends with D'Angelo Russell. They've been friends since uh, high school, AAU days. And there's rumors that he wants to come here and there's rumors that the Suns obviously the Suns want to get him we'd love to have him uh he'd be a fantastic point guard and uh, that's why the Suns are making these moves to clear the cap space if we get D'Angelo Russell I will forgive everything and this offseason will be a complete win because we will get a guy who is an all-star point guard on our team which is what we need the most out of every position we need a point guard the most and to get an all-star point guard a guy who led his team to the playoffs last year uh would be phenomenal but i don't know if we're gonna get him and it's still very much up in the air and it's i would say it's still less than a 50 percent chance that we get him so these are major risks that we're taking here to draft a guy who we could have gotten way later it's just you know as a suns fan man it's rough. Like I said, I don't recommend it for anybody, but they call us the bright future sons. I don't know how bright that future is. I've been an optimist for years, but it has been, this will be year 10, very, very likely of not making the playoffs. Last year was the fourth or fifth year in a row of being one of the worst three or four teams in the league. And I think this year might still be the same. It really kills me. But anyways, enough about the Suns. Uh, other than that, obviously everyone expected Zion Williamson to go first. He did, and uh, I gotta say, is him and R.J. Barrett, uh, who went third to the Knicks, they both choked up and started kind of crying on the uh, interview stand after they got drafted. And uh, they were both. Zion was there with his mom, and so she he got so choked up he couldn't even. If you didn't watch it, he couldn't even talk. Like he was kind of crying onto his mom's shoulder, and she started talking for him. And then uh, R.J. Barrett ended up. He was kind of composed in the beginning, and then his dad kind of walked up next to him, and he started kind of tearing up too. And I'm kind of getting a little emotional just watching this, you know, because I really feel for these guys. And uh, 
when RJ Barrett, he, he starts kind of tearing up and then his dad's next to him and he kind of goes into his dad's shoulder and starts crying into his dad's shoulder a little bit. And uh, his dad just says, starts talking about how hard RJ worked to get here and, you know, yada, yada. And then his dad kind of goes to his son and turns to him and goes, I'm so proud of you, son. I was, oh my goodness, I was, I had like a little tear almost, almost developing. I, it was almost about to run down my cheek. You know, my eyes were watering a little bit. I was not expecting a tearjerker at the NBA draft, but you know, it's a night filled with drama. That's what they say. And uh, I didn't think they meant it in the literal sense, but uh, good for them. You know, it's, it's something, I don't think people realize how hard you have to work to get there. Maybe people do, but it's, it's just a tremendous amount of work. And, you know, people always see the results, but they don't see the the countless hours and days and years in the gym that people spend it's really similar to a to a small business entrepreneur a startup anybody that you know people like to focus on the big results the big IPOs the uh, you know when they hit major milestones but a lot of people don't focus on the countless countless hours and late nights that you spend working to get to that point and just to have it all pay off and Obviously, on top of that, I mean, these guys at the end of the day are becoming multi-multi-millionaires at that very moment that they're drafted, and that changes, you know, their family, their lives and their family's lives forever, so good for them. But uh, besides that, um, I don't know, I didn't, there wasn't much that surprised me in the draft. I think that, I liked Darius Garland a lot, I I really wanted him for the Suns, obviously, like I said, we needed a point guard. Cleveland ended up drafting him. They already have a point guard in Colin Sexton, so we'll see how that works out. I think I'm okay with Cleveland doing that. Best player available, go for it. Um, I thought Atlanta trading up to get DeAndre Hunter. I was not high on DeAndre Hunter. I think he's an okay player. I think he will fit next fit well next to Trey Young, just because Trey Young is going to be the major facilitator, and RJ Hunter is just. He's a he's a good defender, and hey, he played well on the big stage. He won the national championship with Virginia last year. I think he had 26 points in the national championship game, so he has potential, but I think his offensive potential is not that high. But hey, you need great defenders next to uh, Trey Young, and he can shoot. So if you get a guy who Trey Young can dish it to to shoot and then can help him on defense on the other end, I guess it's all right. Again, this draft was not great, as a lot of people said going into it. Um, compared to other drafts, but yeah, I don't know. I didn't agree with the pick necessarily, but I don't. I, I like the fit. I just don't think that he was nearly the best player available at that point. And uh, yeah, other than that, Bull Bull going 45th. Poor kid. He was in the green room, uh, just sitting there forever. The last guy to get picked in the green room. That's got to be a tough situation. I was shocked he went that low. I didn't understand. I knew that he would probably go in the 20s just because of so many injury concerns. But once you get into the second round, all these teams who are in the 30s and early 40s that, I mean, I don't understand why you don't just take a flyer on him because the upside is there. I mean, the upside is you have a seven foot two, seven foot three guy who can shoot threes, play hopefully good defense, be a decent rim protector. I mean, that's a very valuable asset to be able to get at 35th or anywhere back there. So I was surprised he dropped so far, but um, I mean, good luck to him. Good luck to the kid. But other than that, um, there were a lot of trades and a lot of stuff that I could get into, but I don't have everything written down in front of me. I probably should have, but I just wanted to get my off the off the head thoughts. 
Um, anyways, that's it for today, guys. If you did enjoy my little NBA draft rant, let me know. Maybe I'll talk a little more NBA at the end of the episodes uh, now and then. And overall, if you enjoyed the full episode, please share it with at least one person who you think would also enjoy it, at least the Shopify part and the aerospace part. Um, and if you made it all the way through this, I really appreciate it. And maybe you could give me a review on uh, iTunes or whatever podcast platform you listen to. Or it's not iTunes anymore. I forgot. They, they shut it down. It's just Apple Podcasts. Anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week.